Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a holographic part of the SpecRAM podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center hosted via satellite uplink located near Pogachov, Russia. Joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Sherry Wells Jensen. Hi there. Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And Bill Sproul. Hey. And also joining us again on the program is Madalena Cruz Ferreira. Welcome back, Madalena. Thanks for visiting with us again. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Our theme this week is the biggest and the mostest. You guys know the drill. We have three items. One of them is false and the other two true, and you have to identify the false one. All right, item number one. Malagasy, spoken in Madagascar, has six degrees of deictic distance. Rather far away, far away, and very far away, and rather close, close, and right here. Item number two. Ojibwe, spoken in the northern United States and Canada, has the highest dialect-to-speaker ratio, with about 60,000 speakers and 1,200 dialects, though most of the dialects have under a dozen speakers. Item number three. Motohunira, spoken in Australia, features one of the longest pronouns in the world, the first-person plural disharmonic, which is Ngana Yumar Tangara. Who wants to go first? I think I heard Sherry volunteer. (laughs) You heard me moaning, is what you heard. Sherry. (laughs) Sounds like volunteering. You heard the noise of weeping. (laughs) Let's see. Boy. Okay. So, oh, here's what I think. I'm making this up as I go along, (laughs) which I think is the quality way to do it, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's the tradition. (laughs) I really want there to be a first person plural disharmonic. So it's not that one because I really want that one to be true. And this is all about what I want, right? Mm -hmm. So... Oh, man, why do I have to moan when I'm unhappy? I should just be quiet. Okay, so the Ojibwe dialects thing I don't really like either, but I had a student once who was a Peace Corps volunteer who said that she learned Malagasy, and I think she would have mentioned this deictic thing when we were talking about deictics in English. She would have said, oh, yeah, when I was talking about how there might be four in some languages. If there were six, I'm sure she would have taken the opportunity to tell me that I was you know, not giving the very biggest and very best. So I'm going to go with number one, even though I think for the record that the 1200 dialects thing is also not true. But if I can only pick one not true thing, it's going to be number one. All right. Who wants to go next? Hedged, 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 hedged. Way it's to hedge hedged. your bets. Thank you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will take a stab at it, I guess. Although I have to admit all three sound kind of believable. Mm. Especially because with Malagasy, I'm willing to believe almost everything. <laughs> That's that's, that's wrong right there. See, it's a trick. It's a trick. Well, no, no. I think Malagasy, it's vital in linguistics for disproving a bunch of things in typology or showing you that things aren't universal. I mean, that's one thing Malagasy does. One and three both have the advantage of being things that one field worker could say. In other words, a field worker working on Malagasy could observe the six degrees of deictic distance. A single field worker in Australia could observe this pronoun. (laughs) Observing 1,200 dialects among 60,000 speakers takes at least three field workers. (laughs) (laughs) One very enthusiastic field worker could do it. For a really long time. Dissertation? You know this is possible. It's two to get the data and one to double check to see if it wasn't just, oh, I forgot to write it down the same way. I'll just say it's a dialect. <laughs> right. Also, at number two, it's getting in that area where you're thinking, is somebody about to say that all languages have as many dialects as they have speakers? Because that's kind of right, too. 
What I'm going to do is go with saying number two is the false one just because it looks too funding intensive to be true. (laughs) Well, I got to go next because I'm going to agree with Bill, but for a different reason. The Malagasy, because there's such a poetic parallel here to six degrees of separation that it's got to be true, right? Although some of these aren't very separate degrees of separation, but nonetheless, I think there's got to be a relationship there. In fact, that's probably where the expression came from. (laughs) This first person plural disharmonic pronoun, the question says this is one of the longest pronouns of the world, and I'm going to say, sure, it probably is. Now, number two about Ojibwe, I know this is not true from personal experience, and Bill, you're wrong about the field worker question. Chinese has about 1 billion speakers, and I have personally experienced 1.5 billion different dialects. (laughs) So I am sure that number two is the wrong one. Okay. (laughs) My turn? Yeah. I'm going to agree with both Bill and Keith for my own reasons, too. (laughs) Sorry, Sherry. (laughs) Hey, no. I don't think you can do that. I'm sure you're the one who's going to be right. Well, then. But in any case, (laughs) in order. One interesting thing that you said there, Sherry, about the deictic distance names in different languages, Portuguese has four, maybe five. What do you mean, maybe five? It depends how you define it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay? But, I mean, to me, it's five, actually. As a speaker of the language, I think they're five, actually. We can discuss that later on. (laughs) So, to me, it's not uh, fully unbelievable, you know, or too much of a long shot to say that there is one language that has six of them. So, the first one is probably true, I think. The third one, what struck me here was the formulation, one of the longest pronouns in the world. It's quite possible. I don't see why this should not be true. The first person plural disharmonic, although although I must confess I have no idea what the disharmonic might mean. Minor details. It's yeah, beautiful though, exactly. isn't it? It's I beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked your formulation too, Sherry, when you said, I want it so much to be true. <laughs> you know? So take it as wishful thinking or whatever. I think that that one, I wish that one is true. The second one, I have a similar problem to Bill. Okay, 6,000 speakers, I suppose you can count them, right? You go one, two, three, and so on. But then dialects, how do you count them? I mean, where are the boundaries? I mean, I mean, dialects of English, okay? We're all speaking English now, okay? We all have our own dialect, or call it idiolect or, or whatever. Where does the boundary go? And so this is my problem. It may may have been formulated as such. So I now declare that there are 1,200 dialects of this uh, particular language. (laughs) A lot of people do that, right? Oh, okay, you have three dialects. Okay, you have four dialects. Or you have one point something or other million, (laughs) like Keith was saying, right? So I don't think... Billion, 1.5 billion. Billion, sorry, yeah, sorry. (laughs) I have this problem with numbers. (laughs) So I don't think number two is true. You know, if I'm right, I'm going to be insufferably smug for the entire rest of this podcast. I just want to say that for the record. But if the rest of us are right, Trey is going to sulk. <sighs> so let's start with number three. So that one's true. Yay! It has to be one of the longest pronouns in the world because you can never claim to be the absolute most extreme of something. Hey, there you go. There you go. My argument for number two. Right? Yeah. It's too late to campaign. Yep. <laughs> and, and of course, you can argue about what exactly, how do you define, is it number of syllables, number of letters in the orthography, number of phonemes, you know, whatever. So anyway, that one is true. 
it's interesting. Disharmonic mm. means differing from the speaker in an odd number of generations. So wow. your really? parents and your children are disharmonic, but your grandparents and your grandchildren are harmonic, which is a weird thing. Mm. Oh, say that definition again. <laughs> <laughs> if you're one generation away, you're disharmonic. Yeah. Oh, That's okay. really true. So parents and kids, <laughs> your parents and your children would be disharmonic, but your grandparents or your grandkids would be harmonic. Okay. Isn't that beautiful? It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> to explain it to a way Keith would understand is basically they're counting the generations modulo two. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that clarification. Yep. That really uh, yep. straightens it all out. <sighs> Number one, the six degrees of dictic distance oh. is true. Ah! <laughs> yep. Don't really have a lot to say about that one. Does anybody think English has more than two? Oh, yeah. No. This year, that there. I still use yonder sometimes, but I don't know if it counts. Well, see, that's Southern. I was going to go Southern English or Texan English has three. There's here, there, and yonder. Really? How did I miss that in Texas? And then there's down yonder, which I think is the fourth one. That's further than yonder. Yeah, but but that's sort of like here and right here. There's not really, that's sort of an adverbial modifier, I think. So number two is, in fact, the one that is false. (sighs) Okay. Ojibwe does, in fact, have about 60,000 speakers. It was 58,000 or something like that. And it does seem to have a lot of dialects for such a relatively small number of speakers. I mean, it was like more than a dozen. I just sort of made it ridiculously high. And none of you fell for it. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry fell for it. Very few of us I fell for it. I trusted you. I trusted you. Well, that was, you know what? You're still in really good shape. So I have the, I have the scores now. Bill is uh, in first place with 67%. Mm. Sherry's in second place with 57%. I'm next with 44%. That's enough. <laughs> no, no, it gets great. It gets much better. And Madalena has brought the guests up to 43%. So she's oh, that's right. enough. Ooh, lovely, lovely. And uh, Keith has 33%. Good job. Oh, hey, that's better. Hey. That is exactly what you'd expect from chance. Good job. <laughs> ah, yep, take a chance. <laughs> I should be rolling a die. Why do I think about these? <laughs> you probably wouldn't do any worse. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, you should pick before you even hear what they are. That would make it okay. Compl- that would okay, make it next week fair. I'm going to do that. Yeah. So if you just said number, it's always number three. You know, number three. But if no, you no, do that, you then-, would, then you would arrange it. <laughs> yes, indeed, you're right. <laughs> so I guess that's enough of lies, damn lies, and linguistics. So we'll be right back with some linguistic news after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is sponsored in part by the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics, a new book from more than three of the editors of Speculative Grammarian. The past 25 years have witnessed many changes in linguistics, with major developments in linguistic theory, significant expansion in language description, and even some progress in getting a few members of the general public to realize that the term linguist is not defined as someone who works at the UN doing simultaneous translation. Speculative Grammarian is proud to have been an important part, probably the most important part really, of these changes. And now, in our humble yet authoritative opinion, the time is ripe for the appearance of an anthology containing the most important linguistics articles to have appeared in Specgram in the past 25 years. This anthology, it is hoped, will allow our readers to gain a deeper, wider, fatter understanding of linguistics as it evolved in the late 20th and 21st centuries, without the trouble of having to take a graduate seminar in modern linguistics, taught by a professor who's so old that she thinks the Beach Boys are still cute. Some of us took graduate seminars like that ourselves, and believe us, this book is better. Visit specgram.com slash book and order your copy today. Errata are also available online for a limited time only. Eventually all the errors will be found and fixed, right? 
Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. We have now for you a taste of the linguistics news from the July 8th issue of The Telegraph, <laughs> courtesy of an Aussie restaurateur. And restaurateur, by the way, I just want to make a note that that is one of the words I do want to eliminate from English in case that becomes relevant later. Uh, Aussie restaurateur who has invented a new letter of the alphabet, 26 being insufficient for him. Mr. Paul Mathis is unhappy with 26 letters and wants number 27 to represent the word the. I'm thinking that maybe he's tired of typing te, which is something that I type a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> te. You know, and that can cause rage. So I, I understand why maybe it would be a more harmonic <laughs> universe if we could not type that anymore. Because possibly he, well, he says it's the most frequently used word. And I suppose, you know, choose the corpus that pleases you. And I suppose it is. <laughs> and he says that given that it's so frequent, we would save all these keystrokes in texting. So I would argue, first off, that it's not the most common word in texting because I have a 13-year-old daughter. And I know that OMG is the more lol. lol. I'm sure like there's more frequent words that we could choose. <laughs> and you know what? You're right. V gets dropped a lot in text. I mean, that's one of the first things to go. Yeah. Way yeah. extra. Yeah. You just don't need it. Yeah. You don't need it. You yeah. can go along perfectly well without it. I have several objections to this, that being one of them. Another one is that this gentleman invested $38,000 and making this work in whatever it is he did to promote this. I haven't seen a penny of that, so I don't see any reason why <laughs> I should assist in the promotion of this. I just really don't. I just really don't. And my third objection, I skipped number two because we already talked about it, right? My third objection is really in defense of the alphabet song. You have to think about the musical consequences of all your acts, right? And, <laughs> and this one has consequences. What are you supposed to do? Let's see. W, X, Y, and Z, and the, you'd have to add a whole nother extra beat. I need this laid out for me. Does he want a whole extra measure added to the alphabet song? Are we supposed to go W, X, Y, Z, the, is that what we're supposed to do? I need this clarified for me before I'm willing to go anywhere with this. I got an answer there for you, Sherry. Do all you? we need to do, yeah, that's easy. The alphabet song can be saved. So all we need to say is W, X, Y, the, Z. <laughs> That's right. But then it's the 26th letter, not the 27th. Anyway. I mean, it's 27th of the set. It doesn't have to be 27th in order. Uh, at least when we were little, we always sang W out. If you said W, you get an extra syllable back. <laughs> we cannot w say w. w. That's that's forbidden. We can't Cram do that. W and X together in one, WX. one foot or something. I thought we ought to try it, you know, so I went in search of this app. Really? I did. So the very first thing I did was I lost the link that you sent me to this article, and then I, did, I was too lazy to Google it again. Because that would have caused effort. So I typed the into the app store and I got <laughs> 2,630 2, 2, hits. And the number six. Uh, only? Was the only gets it. But number six was learn Mandarin Chinese with the bean dolls, I swear to you. And the bean dolls are really, really cute. And that took me a really long time to get past number six. <laughs> And then, and then I got past it. And then number eleven was the Kitty Mo prank call soundboard. And that really that took me a long time to get past too. <laughs> so I think you should all block my number for a while because I'm gonna be playing with that. <laughs> and then we got to the walking zombie assault, and I had to quit because it, I got frightened. <laughs> so I put alphabet into the App Store search engine, and I got 3,800 hits. So I didn't even look at those. <laughs> so then I decided to put 27 in because I was getting sort of desperate. 
And my first hit was ADA 27th New Dentist Conference, along with 27 Discount Liquor in Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> and then I just totally gave up. <laughs> I totally gave up. And then I found it on the Android App Store because it's not even on the Apple App Store. And it's 6.3 megs. And so I didn't download it because I don't need 6.3 megs of the. And so I gave up. You sure that was the app and not a Microsoft Word document? <laughs> it just said that just has the word the in it. Yes, that's about 6.3 megs. <laughs> that might have been it. And then I decided finally, and this is my last, I think this is the nail in the coffin of this thing, is that if you really are obsessed with saving space, you should be writing in Braille anyway and not typing because Braille has single character words, single character representations for, and for, of, the, with, but, as, you, it, his, us, will, so, that, not, and knowledge, along with others. And so really, if it's about space saving, you should buy uh. the $10 app that lets you type Braille on your iPhone. And sorry, Paul Mathis, but that's what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. So an interesting factoid about the mistyping T-E-H for the in uh, some online slang, that's actually, it's taken on a new meaning. Oh, no. I thought what have I had? What my is mother? it? <laughs> it's commonly used in the, the phrase, te funny, which sort of means a thing that is very funny. And so, like, somebody could post a joke or something, and you go, oh, that is te funny. Hmm. I don't know. It's a very odd thing. It exists. It's obviously a translation of the French la, which can be used for the same thing. Oh, okay. It's la funny. That is a very interesting grammaticalization little phenomenon there because we do not expect definite articles to become content morphemes. Right. That's weird. So I I thought there's some good points and bad points about his proposal. At least he used an existing letter. So Che, the the Cyrillic letter, is a thing. He didn't make up some Dr. Seussian type new letter. (laughs) Wait, is that a good point or a bad point? I think it's a good point because at least it exists. Right. And the character already exists. So he doesn't have to convince people to accept a character into their code sets and such stuff like that. Well, no, wait a minute, Trake, because the article says the letter looks like the Cyrillic letter. Yeah, but that's what you would end up using. I mean, there's no way. Well, okay. So yeah. it's close enough that you can right. use that one. One of the best things about it is that people are going to learn the interesting etymology of ampersand in reading about yeah. this because yeah. it seems to come up in the discussion. Which was interesting. Yeah. It was. Uh, and for our listeners who don't know, um, there was a time when and was considered part of the alphabet. After XYZ, it'd be XYZ and per se and. And then that got smooshed down to ampersand. And that's where that comes from. So that was interesting. But it didn't survive as an alphabet letter, did it? Which because was it's what, a dumb what, idea. <laughs> it it isn't a letter. Well, there's a character. I mean, the ampersand, the and yeah, sign. Yeah, yeah, but not as a letter of the alphabet. And his argument, right. what he was saying was, I want it to be a letter of the alphabet. Right. The example of the ampersand. But that, that didn't hold water, I didn't think. Well, no, but the point is that people will learn about ampersand, not that it actually mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's the good part. The bad parts are that Che is an ugly letter, and as Sherry mentioned, he spent $38,000. I'm trying to figure out on what. Well, it said he invested $38,000 into developing the symbol. I mean, what, he, he had to do it on the beach or what? <laughs> he had to do a focus group, clearly. Uh, it's also very, very English-centric because other languages, something that looks like a combination of a T and an H – other languages that use the Latin alphabet aren't going to want to use this thing. But he's doing it for the. It's for English. Come on. Yeah, it's, right, right. it's for English. It's supposed That's to be English-centric. And the biggest point against it is it's clearly never going to work. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Related to what Bill said, I thought that was interesting. 
about the French articles. I was actually thinking instead we should use L apostrophe for the in English as a semi-borrowing from French, and we should keep borrowing bits of French, but mangle them like that. And so maximize efficiency in English and maximize annoyance of the French. I should say, I found the idea in itself, creating letters or symbols or whatever for common words, I found the idea quite appealing in itself. And then I started thinking, I mean, if you want to do that for the most common words, why not do it for all the words of the language? Mm. You know, I mean, a symbol for particular words, uh, a symbol for phrases like the ones that we were mentioning about texting, like ruffle and lol and OMG and all of that. Why not? We have written about that. It's background, right? I was reminded of the simplificational onomastics article, <laughs> which I think is brilliant, you know, explaining why Chinese is so easy to learn. We could do something like that, I thought, right? We also wrote about it in Easy as Pie, you know, the exquisite mm -hmm. piece. And then I was wondering, we should do something like that. But then I found out that we have already done it. I mean, isn't this exactly what we did with the Voynich manuscript? <laughs> isn't this our own shorthand secret? Right? The no first one. rule of Voynich is we don't talk about Voynich. Okay. So, okay. So I haven't talked about it, but I have to say it anyway. It's nay on the Voynich way. And then, of course, the other thing that we should add, because this is done for English. This Paul Mathis person wants to do it for English, right? And then my further suggestion is we should do it with one specific phonetic standard, like in the unnameable manuscript, uh, <laughs> our own phonetic standard, so nobody else can read what we write. <laughs> that linguistics already does that. Yeah. <laughs> well, doesn't it? I mean, we're reinventing the wheel, aren't we? Or he is, anyway. Hmm. I object to this proposal, but for a different reason. Two different reasons, actually. One is it's creeping compressionism. <laughs> okay. It makes sense for Braille because given the economies of scale, Braille is resource intensive or has been historically resource intensive. But with spoken English, you start doing this and five years later, we'll be speaking compressed files. Because <laughs> that's really what this is, and the only people that will be happy are mathematicians. And they won't really be happy because they're mathematicians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was an article about that in Specgram on Huffmanglish, which was a yes. new Huffman encoding of English. And I, I like it. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. it, it was an interesting tour de force, but um, <laughs> but somewhat impractical. <laughs> The other reason I don't like this is the guy goes out and pays money to recreate a different language's Unicode character or something like that and completely ignores the fact that English had other letters, one of which was for the. Right. Okay. Maybe not with the vowel, but it had the, the part. All right. It's still in lots of character sets. I can make that one with my phone. Granted, it's by punching the little button for Icelandic. <laughs> and I'm not sure why I have that, but I do. But, you know, Thorn's a perfectly good letter. English had the win. We don't have to use it for W. We could use it for something else if we wanted to. There was the old manuscript trick that looked like a long seven that was frequently used for and, right? So I don't know why you can't use good old-fashioned primary school characters like Thorn. 
<laughs> I think we just learned a whole lot about you. <laughs> if you picked that up in primary school. <laughs> if they were good enough for Alfrich, they're good enough for everybody. Where exactly did you go to primary school, Bill? It's Alabama. It's a bit behind. <laughs> <laughs> then you mean thorn, don't you? Not thorn. You yeah. got to uncompress the vowel. Let it have full length that it won't. <sighs> We're going to have to send somebody to your house and make sure you never do that again. <laughs> I don't have much of an accent anymore, but I grew up with a southern accent. That was painful. Yes, I like it. <laughs> Only because you can't hear yourself. <laughs> Look, I play the ukulele. <laughs> I don't think you play a ukulele. You deploy a ukulele. <laughs> you should see what happens when you get four of them all at the same time. It's really quite something. How come you haven't written us a theme song with your ukulele band? Ah, uh, well, you know, commission me. <laughs> it can't be done. I want to commission you to write a song called The. <laughs> How did you spell ukulele? Was with a single letter? Yes, well, right. That'd be great. You know, instead of saying ukulele, there's a lot of letters there. It takes a long time. <laughs> it does take a long time. It is creeping compressionism because we already write uke, and then I could just start writing you, right? And clearly, it would have to mean ukulele. It could not possibly mean anything else. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we decide. We, the users, we decide about the meanings of words, don't we? <laughs> Apparently, we do. <laughs> right? Apparently, that's what we do. See, so. this is how you get 1,200 dialects. Is one person says, I'm going to write the with a single letter. So he says, no, you're an idiot. I'm going to write ukulele with one letter. <laughs> There's a new dialect for you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Dialect is actually a compressed form of the word digraphlect. <laughs> <laughs> all right, have we milked this for all it's worth? <laughs> uh, and then some. Okay. I think perhaps. So I guess that's enough linguistic news for now. We'll be back with a discussion of linguistic features we wish English had after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Grubs, the Grand Royale ukulelists of the Black Swamp. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Language of Language, a linguistics course for starters, for anyone interested in language matters and why language matters. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Well, English is a great language. It, well, at least it's good enough for us ling nerds. In fact, it's about the only one I can speak. And even Madalena, who's tried out a lot of languages, seems to judge English to be worthy of speaking. But we've been talking here in the office, and we're realizing that English isn't quite perfect. It's pretty close, but our addictive reading of typology books has convinced us that English is probably missing a few essential features, things that it really kind of needs. And then we looked this up on YouTube and found that a certain Mr. Tom Scott has done an entire video of features he thinks English is lacking. And heck, if Tom Scott can do it, so can we. So today we want to talk a little bit about our opinions of the linguistic features that English really needs. Madalena, what can you tell us that you think English is missing? I don't think English is missing anything. With couple, <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> with a couple of provisos. Oh, okay. I, I think English should be English instead of the French that it actually is with that ridiculous accent. Avec <laughs> l'accent ridicule. <laughs> That's what English has turned out to be. Um, otherwise, as said, I think English is absolutely perfect. 
<laughs> apart from two problems. One, so when I say English, I mean it speakers, obviously. The language has a huge inferiority complex. We need to make it better. We need to make it bigger. We need to make it one size fits all. <laughs> okay? I think all the problems with English come from one recent, I think it was Facebook posting by Speculative Grammarian, that English is going through the pockets of other languages with <laughs> and pieces, <laughs> less dark alleys. <laughs> right? yep. So that's one problem. That's the inferiority complex. And then the other one, the next one, the consequence of it is the pickpocket complex. If I've pinched it, then it's mine. So English can't resist Englishifying the things that it pinches. So no one finds out it's been pinched. Yes, exactly. And then English We're does that. up the deed. Absolutely, absolutely. And it does that with ludicrous consequences, I think. The languages help the speakers. They don't keep, for example, the stress marks <laughs> because English doesn't use any. So you don't go to a cafe, you go to a cave. <laughs> Can you eat liver pate? <laughs> liver pate? Absolutely. At the cave. At the cave. It sounds horrible, <laughs> right? So I think that's the main problem with English. So if we, the speakers of the language, let it develop on its own, no interference, you know, no pitching, good as it is, I think it will have all the features that it needs for global interaction and none of the features that it doesn't need. <laughs> well, I feel as a native English speaker, I have to defend my language a little bit. I'm defending it, Trey, didn't you? <laughs> I just want to say that the issues with uh, cafe and pate, and pate hey. which I can no longer say correctly now that I've thought about it too much. Well, there you go. <laughs> that's orthography. And English orthography is a disaster. We are not discussing <laughs> what English orthography needs because what it needs is a total rewrite from scratch. <laughs> Well, I'm, then, Trey, can I'm, you suggest I'm anything that's a real problem? Yeah, actually. So I have several layers of improbability here of things that I would like to see added to English. <laughs> At the most realistic, I guess, would be I wish we could upgrade things that English actually has from dialect variation to a formal standard. So like second person plural pronoun, a singular genderless third person pronoun, and modal stacking. Those are all extremely useful things that are common in various dialects of English. So y'all, singular they, and things like might, could. Mm. Those are great. They're really useful, but they're not standard enough to be used in many situations. Yeah, but English uses it already. That's what I mean. English is perfect. It's all there. <laughs> you have only to look for it. I mean, how many dialects of English have we counted so far? 1,200. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so in terms of features that other languages have that are well-attested, I wish English had inclusivity because it would be awesome to grammatically yes. shun someone. Yes, 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 <laughs> yeah. yes. You they might not shunning, even not for including? Yes. <laughs> no, shunning. Uh, <laughs> I don't see why it should have it because inclusivity is all about the addressee. Isn't it? Is it one addressee or several addressees? Well, just being able to say we exclusive to someone would be, would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. But who are we excluding? The person you're talking to. The addressee. Yeah. Is it one person? Is it several people? It doesn't we matter. We could exclude everybody. Yeah. I mean, we could exclude all kinds of people if we had that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we have the singular, I. Well, but <laughs> they're still in-group and out-group, so, you know. Uh, and I wish we had evidentials because... I want to believe just enough in Sapir Wharf to think that it would, if we had to convey the sources of our information, there'd be a little less lying, disinformation, and manipulation in politics. I don't think politicians would be affected by an evidential system. If they had to use it, if it was part of the grammar. <laughs> I was told 
in school that language has three primary functions, right? Inform, persuade, and entertain. If we had evidentiality in English, the former two would be gone. You can't inform and you can't persuade with evidentiality in language, right? And if only entertainment and if only entertainment is left, right? How can we tell entertainment from non-entertainment? Which means, how would Specgram be special? <laughs> well, there are already a number of people who have difficulty uh, distinguishing Specgram from reality. <laughs> I'm not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and see, this is why I want inclusivity, is so I can exclude them and say, you are not of our tribe. Oh, okay. okay. Well, I mean, how about it's the end of the day and your children are running around and you want to say, oh, we're going to have some snacks and open a bottle of wine. It's really handy if you can exclude the children, right? I mean, it's only proper. <laughs> and if I could do that grammatically, then they would know. And we wouldn't have to argue about who just got invited to do what. What irks me about this inclusivity thing, it's again, the addressee, the problem of the addressee. When I write to people, or for example, when we were discussing this meeting on email, right? I asked something like, can we discuss everyone else's contributions? And I wanted to say something like, I want to discuss the contributions of everybody else except the person who's proposing that particular contribution. So how do we do that? I wanted to include all the addressees except one. If we had a good inclusivity system, we would all know that. Well, they <laughs> Yeah. If you want to have inclusivity, we have it all the way. You and me, so say Trey and me, Bill and me, Sherry and me, Keith and me, Bill, Keith, and Cherry, but not Trey, for example? <laughs> yes, well, a you system know. like that is possible, of course. Now, there's an article about that. What is it, Trey, the eidetic pronouns? Yep, we know the new guy is the name of the language. Yes, and the language has a separate pronoun for every possible grouping of members of the tribe. That is correct. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and because of particular... Historical accidents. Historical accidents and, 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 and uh, cognitive abilities, everyone's able to remember them all. Yep. Now, the thing that I think is missing in English is a little bit like evidentiality, but it's not quite the same. I think what we really need is sentence final mood particles, modal kind of particles. Mm. So let me give you a set from Lahu. So this is what we really ought to have. So Lahu Ya, that means Lahu person, I guess. So Lahu Ya Yo means he's a Lahu. Lahu Ya Aw, he's a Lahu, of course. Lahu Ya Law, gee, he's a Lahu. And Lahu Ya Hey, I guess he's a Lahu. That's what we need to be able to do. We have that in Singapore English. I'm being. Oh, that's right. You have la. I'm. You have la. You have me. You have law. You have what? All of that is in English. All right. That's because Singapore English is really okay. just Chinese by another name. No, I'm, <laughs> no. You're talking about Singlish. That's about, I'm talking about Singapore English. So, sort of official version of the language. I mean, as I said, English has it all. It doesn't need anything. You just have to look for it. <laughs> no real complaint about Singapore here, but I do want to point that Singaporeans have not done a proper job of advertising Singlish because the rest of the world is pretty oblivious to these things. I know. But again, Keith, what I'm talking about is not Singlish. Singlish is one thing. Singapore English is something else. Oh, I see. Okay. You see, S Singapore English is what people call, well, by many different names. Sometimes they call it Singapore Educated English. I see. Or Singapore Standard English, whereas Singlish is Singapore Colloquial English. That's a Creole. Okay. So okay. Chinese by another name, oh. if you want. Right? It's Chinese and Malay and Tamil borrowings, and it's a wonderful language, right? Okay, so that's what I was referring to as Chinese. Yeah, yeah, right. What I mean, when you speak standard Singapore English, right, you use those particles, mm. so they're part of the standard. Mm. 
So Keith, give us a set that we can try out, you know, for five minutes or something. So just pick a couple of those mood particles that are the most useful and tell me what they are again. Well, uh, so the most, most useful ones are awe, which is the, of course, the strong declarative awe. So I'm right, awe. Okay. With the falling tune? Or I have no idea. I'm taking this from a grammar and oh, tone okay. is not. A tone may be marked, but I've forgotten how it's marked. There's nothing on so, that. We were borrowing it into English and nativizing it brutally. Yeah, we're going to nativize it anyway, right? <laughs> so number one was really the best answer, awe. Awe. Yeah, that's right. And then law is okay. surprise. G. Oh, number two uh, was right, law? Number two was right, law? Yeah, there you go. Okay. That's enough. Two okay. would be an improvement. We're going to need to practice with these before we can move them on in, really. So it's good that we just give us two to start with. Aw. I think we actually already have one of these in Textees, which is LOL. Mm. Yeah, so lol is kind of a, you know, just kidding, joking, hedging your... Yeah, a hedge is useful. Yeah. Mm. What you mean, of course, is it's useful aw. It's useful aw. <laughs> no, it's useful law. I just now thought of it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is not going to work. <laughs> Bill, you got any? <laughs> well, of course, one of the things I was going to say is evidentials, but everybody always thinks of evidentials. So a couple of additional ones. Number one, a set of slightly more specific versions of the word thing. Such as? Hmm. So you could have things like thinga and thingo and so forth. And the difference is one of them would actually mean physical objects. And one of them would mean statement. And one of them would be idea or that kind of thing. So if you said, so-and-so said a funny thingy, you would be able to convey that it wasn't the idea that was weird. It was how they said it, Mm. right? It's the statement, not Mm. the idea. Mm. Is this making any sense? Intonation? There's more in how you say it than in what you say? Well, phrasing. Yeah. All right. So the idea is if you use the statement version of thing, then it would mean what I'm talking about is the actual word somebody used. Okay. So there's one only a linguist would use. Go on. Right. (laughs) Right. But it can, court cases, it could become (laughs) useful. You know, that type of thing. Another version would be the general idea you think someone's trying to convey. So it's like, you don't remember whether that was an active sentence or a passive sentence. You've already turned it into some genericized version in your head, and that's all you're really committing to. I mean, a a semanticist would say you're referring to the propositional content, but that's what semanticists do. (laughs) But the emphasis is you're not really talking about the exact words because you don't care about it really, or you don't remember or something like that. But then you've got the base version, which is actually referring to a physical object. Right. Now, I think we have that. So Madalena may be correct, and there's actually all these things exist. We just have to find them. Mm. So in all the usages I've heard growing up and stuff, doohickey is always a physical thing Mm. that you don't have a name for. Mm. That one's there. I was going to talk about something else that people sometimes say. It's very useful. I think that guy, I can't remember his name, the one on YouTube, he had it as well. Absolute direction. Mm. Yes. Is anyone going to say anything about that so that I can counterattack immediately? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I would love to be counterattacked. Shall I I counterattack straight away and then you counterattack? Go for it. (laughs) I would like to see you counterattacked. Law? Okay. Okay. 
So it's this kind of thing for those not in the know, right? Instead of talking of left and right, instead of saying, for example, my left hand and my right hand, you say your north foot and your south hand. And people say, oh, this is brilliant because you always know what you're talking about. And I was thinking, really? How can you teach someone to dance giving such directions? When you dance, you whirl around, right? So which foot are you moving? Is it the south one to the north position or is it the west one to the east position? And when global English, global English, mind my words, reaches the north and the south pole, (laughs) what is going to happen? I mean, a global language is supposed to be able to be used everywhere on the globe. That's why it's global. Well, I think you would have some conventions at the poles. (laughs) Then you don't have absolute direction that's the thing you just define that like the prime meridian is north at the north pole okay and as long as everyone agrees because i mean everyone you know has to agree where north south and east and west are in any particular location mm-hmm. for dancing directions again if you as long as you could speak quickly enough you could give someone the information that they need in real time so the your foot that is currently <laughs> west needs to move south that sounds like that game what's that game called that uh, i used to play with my kids you lie on the floor and you put your left foot on this particular place. Twister. And then... Twister. Twister. There you go. Yeah. It sounded like Twister to me. Well, there's an easier answer for dancing, and that is that you would only do line dancing or square dancing. There you yeah, go. Well, because works. you would always be oriented in, in cardinal directions. Yeah, but then, then those people can't speak English. And I want to be able to speak English when I dance to tango or the waltz <laughs> or salsa or whatever. Non-English dances in that case. <laughs> <laughs> Englishified as well, aren't they? <laughs> we can nativize someone... them by dancing the tango only in straight lines. <laughs> no, that's not the tango. That's not a tango. <laughs> no, it's an Englishification of tango. It's not the tango. As someone who constantly reverses left and right, I would like to argue slightly against Madalena here. I think, number one, it is frequently easier to be able to say, okay, it's north or it's south or it's east or it's west, because you're not down to going, okay, which hand has the watch on it? Oh, no, I have a cell phone. I don't have a watch anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. All right. Number two, if you're in one of those situations like dancing or the North Pole or something like that, you just do a simple shift to relative cardinal direction, which is the direction you're facing is north. And one hand is always the east hand and the other is always the west hand. Mysteriously, that's much easier to keep track of than left and right. For some people, Bill, (laughs) maybe I have this problem with absolute directions because I don't know where the north is. I have no idea. I mean, now I know, okay, the place where I'm sitting right now. But you take me to the place where I am now. I'm at home, okay? I'm in my study. If you take me to the kitchen and you whirl me around, and you ask me, where is North? I have no idea. I actually read a firsthand account of someone who was a field worker in Australia who was trying to learn this system. Mm. And actually, it's similar to what you see in some video games where you have a little circle that sort of is constantly shifting and, and pointing so you know which way the cardinal directions are. And she said that as she started trying to get used to the system, she just sort of, without realizing it, developed one of these. And she actually had a compass floating in her head all the time that was pointing in the right direction. An interesting point about that, there has been some research done on people's integration of novel perceptual input. And one of the ways that they tested this 
was to develop a belt that created some kind of skin surface tactile stimulus at the point that was north. So while you're wearing the belt, if you turn around, there's this kind of spot of slight electrical stimulation you can feel that tracks it. Interesting. And what they were doing was saying, do people integrate this? I mean, how natural does it become is what it boils down to. And if I remember correctly, some of the research was reporting after a certain amount of time, and that was weeks or a couple of months or something like that, it really was completely integrated. It was not perceived anymore as being the belt doing it. It was just perceiving where North was. And then if they didn't have the belt, they felt sort of deprived. You know, it's like you took your glasses off and you're real nearsighted. You can't see things as well. So... You know, obviously, keeping track of which direction is north, et cetera, at first is a problem. Keeping track of if you travel, because I know how this works, because the first time I went to the West Coast, because the ocean was on the wrong side, all the directions were backwards. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Okay. And it was creepy because instead of waves and troughs, there were troughs and waves. (laughs) But, you know, absent that kind of thing, you could probably adjust to it fairly quickly. You know something interesting? I know, well, in my family, some of my close family members, so husband and children, they are amazing at finding their bearings. And some of us are not. So one of my children (laughs) takes after me and she's completely hopeless at finding her way, right? But an interesting thing is those of us who are good at instantly knowing where they are and where the north is and finding directions and all that, they had trouble when they went to the southern hemisphere. So when they visited Australia, they said, okay, well, where is the north now? Real trouble. I don't know if any of you has experience of this. So changing from north to south, all your directions get mixed up a bit like what you said, like the ocean is on the wrong side. Right. Interesting. So it happens with north and south as well. I'm sure these things can be trained. I was going to say, I think we've talked before about the fact that speakers of tone languages are more likely to have perfect pitch. And so not that they all have perfect pitch, but because paying attention to these kinds of things, it's the same thing. If you study art, you can become more attuned to differences in color. And if you study music, you pay more attention to certain kinds of sounds. And, you know, if you have to pay attention to tones, you have a better chance of developing perfect pitch. I'm guessing there aren't too many people who grow up speaking these languages with absolute direction who are completely and utterly lost all the time, right? Some people are probably better than others, but they probably always know, you know, at least like at the gradation of north, south, east, and west, even the people who are bad at it are probably relatively accurate. Because I've heard some of the languages have, what, like 64 different divisions for the full circle, which is crazy. So we ought to really be picking these things to add to English in terms of how they will cognitively benefit us. So we can make this Superman language kind of thing, right? So whatever will improve our cognition are the aspects that we should add. Since you mentioned Superman language, have you guys heard of the novel Babel 17? Yes. Babel 17 is this language in a novel by Delaney that it's not only implausible, it's impossible, but it gives you these super abilities to better understand reality just by speaking it. Yeah, baby. And so there's a famous scene in the book where a protagonist is trapped in a web and by speaking about it in Babel 17, she suddenly realizes the weaknesses of the web and she's able to attack it at its weakest point and set herself free. And so that would be a real Superman language. Yeah. Yeah. So, Madalena, you wanted to say something about tone? Yeah, about the thing about perfect pitch, what you were saying, right? This is research, uh, I think, by uh, Diana Deutsch. 
She's the one who started it off I mean, many, many years ago. She said speaks of tone languages are more bound to have perfect pitch than speaks of intonation languages. And I'm not sure whether any research has been done on the pitch of intonation language speakers. Because what she found was with a couple of days of interval, speakers of tone languages would say the words of their languages at exactly the same pitch. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wonder, speakers of intonation languages, don't we all do this? If I come into a room and I say, good morning, everyone, don't I always say it in the same pitch? That's what I wonder. Hmm. There is some research that when you begin to sing a song that you know, that you're quite familiar with, that you will sing it starting more or less in the proper key. So mm. we do have pretty good pitch memory, even if we don't think we do. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Why is it restricted to speakers of tone languages and whether there is any research on speakers of intonation languages? Because I, I think it's the same thing for us as well. Yeah, I mean, speakers of non-tone languages. Anyway, it was just a detail. Hmm? <laughs> I would add that, Trey, if you're going to talk about Sapir Whorf-based science fiction plots, you have to add in Jack Vance's The Languages of Pao. Not familiar. Or POW. I don't know how it's supposed to be said. It's P-A-O, but... POW, it's got to be POW. In the absence of accent marks, I decided it was P-A-O, because it's English. I can do with the accent marks what I want. But <laughs> the whole basis of that was the idea of a man from a university-founded planet designing other people's languages to affect how they thought. With the plot complication being that he was actually power mad and had in the vocabulary of his home planet gone emeritus, <laughs> which was the term, again, it was founded by university. And so there was a kind of genetic trait where when they got old enough, they would become megalomaniacal and it was called going emeritus. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd add that. <laughs> okay. Have we covered this pretty well? Oh, I, I have two quick ones to add. You guys took all the good ones, I think, except for, well, I've got one from each end of the spectrum here. English should have clicks just because clicks are cool. I agree. We could replace all STR clusters with clicks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that'd be a service to all second language speakers everywhere in the world. I was going to say we should replace all the interdental fricatives, but that'd be way too much work. And we'd get sick of them. But if we could just they, replace they are them. being replaced, Sherry. Well, okay, yeah. Okay, so that'll take care of itself, right? Mm. Um, That's right, but, they but, will. But we need clicks because clicks are just massively fun. And I think we'd be a more cheerful people <laughs> if we lived on street <laughs> instead of street. I just think I would be happier. And I don't care what kind of clicks there. I'm not you know, I don't I don't have a rule about that, but I think we need that. I figured everyone else would say evidentials and, and inclusive we and informal you. I figured all that would be taken. So I thought maybe I would release my inner conlanger and say that I think English should be ergative. No! No, <laughs> no, no, it should. It should. And I have good reason for this. Not just my inner conlanger. What would it's, it do for us? I tell you what, all of the English as a second language teachers, instantly their status would get doubled. Because who can explain <laughs> that monstrous stuff, right? So we'd all get paid more. And then I also spent today in way too many meetings, administrative meetings kind of things. And I was thinking as I was sitting there, if you guys all had to figure out which ending to put on all those noun phrases that you're using, you guys would talk a lot less. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think think it'd be good. People would have to stop and think. It'd be a lot quieter. There'd be a lot less sort of mindless conversation going on. 
<laughs> and it would be, once again, I think it's a peacemaking effort on my part. If we could enforce this, people would just, they'd say fewer things. And that maybe that would be better. I don't know for sure. This is a translation, but there's a famous quote from Roman history in relation to the Gauls that goes something like, they made a desert and called it peace. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it depends on how many meetings you've sat through in a day, whether you think it's yes. a good idea or not. Well, there are certain aspects of the Roman approach to the Gauls which seem laudable when one has been dealing with bureaucratic meetings. <laughs> Ballistas, for example. <laughs> well, on that uplifting note, I think we should bring this episode of Language Made Difficult to a close. So that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Thanks to our guest, Madalena, for hanging out with us. And join us next time when we discuss what to do if you contract a sociolinguistic disease in your genitive case. Did you really just say that? I sure did. <laughs> oh, mercy. It got very quiet. Everyone's still there? They're still here. Okay. I think so. so. All right. Just drinking up your words, Trey. <laughs> <laughs> I was just having a, a cognate moment with myself here. Welcome to Language Made Difficult. That went well. I said you might could speak. I was just helping her out okay. Y'all go ahead. <laughs> no, she's one person. That's wrong. Wrong. Quick question, Madalena. Have I been horribly mangling your name? Uh, it's fine. Okay. I love accents. <laughs> <laughs> They're so quaint. Ooh, you've just been told, Trey. <laughs> I'm uh, a phonetician, don't forget. <laughs> you know, I read it as if, as if it were Spanish rather than Portuguese. Cause... Don't. If you read it in Spanish, I'll never speak to you again. <laughs> well, otherwise it'd be Ferreira. You can read it in Texan. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> not Spanish uh, that's my go-to right for any European language if I don't know anything about it just pretend it's Spanish can you read it in German that's okay Spanish <laughs> is too close for comfort yeah <laughs> I don't think I can pull off the the uvular R it's okay it's okay Let, let's hear it let's hear it <laughs> well now I'm going to be self-conscious I'm going to do like 18 takes it's a test let's hear it <laughs> that was exactly what yeah alright so if you hear yourself referred to as Magdalena Smith, you'll know what happened. He just panicked right, right. at the last minute. <laughs> Except he'll say a smito to make it Spanish. <laughs> oh, that's horrible.